dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Leaders want success. In fact, our people count on us to provide success. That's why it's important to know where we can fail. Being able to identify the pitfalls along our road is sometimes as important as knowing where we're going. In this series of five talks, we examine the five pitfalls that plague leaders and hinder our ability to succeed. The first among these five is fatalism. And I'm so looking forward to breaking it down and opening it to Christ's hope in your lives. I'm really excited about the opportunity to work with you today and to really go deeper into our understanding of what makes us succeed as leaders. And that's what might surprise you because you said, well, this actually is a a course we're taking here in order to understand how we could fail. How is it that understanding how we can fail actually could lead us to success? And I would just laugh because obviously anybody who's been in a position of leadership understands that failure is real. And that failure is often the best way to success. In other words, we can sometimes fail our way into success by discovering as we go along the way, the way not to do things, right? And yet we might not have the luxury of being able to do that. In some of our positions, failure is not an option. Well, in both cases, either if you're the entrepreneur bumping your way along the road uh, to your destination, or if you are the polished business professional who knows that failure is not even in your vocabulary, both of you need to understand the common pitfalls that can lead to failure. Because by understanding these pitfalls, we're able to avoid them the better. But of course, I don't want to stop just there. I think it's really important for us to understand how Christ and the Christian faith actually can transform what is a pitfall for many of us into an opportunity. In other words, that Jesus meets us precisely where we fail as leaders in order to bring us an even greater victory than anything that we could achieve just based on our own natural merits. So let's get into this, right? So if we, if we attack any act of leadership, be it a big, huge, overarching theme of the influence our life will bear on the world before we die, or be it in a really closely knit theme, like how am I going to organize my children on our vacation, right? Whether it's a big picture identity or a very small act, the same structure follows. And it's a structure that comes obviously, you know, from all the action that we do. And I really owe a lot of my credit to understanding this to St. Thomas Aquinas because he lays this structure out beautifully in his Summa Theologica. And at its heart, he, he lays out the elements that's involved in any authentic human action. And since we know that all authentic human actions are at the heart of what it means to really lead from the front, especially to lead in the image of Christ, well, then we understand that if we can hone those elements in and we can optimize them to their best potential, well, we'll be able to actually maximize the 
the impact that our leadership makes upon the world. We will be great leaders to the degree that we own our actions. Well, what exactly are those elements of the action? Well, the very first element of the actions for St. Thomas Aquinas is that in fact, a leader has to own the vision. Now, this vision might come from them, it might come from someone else, but a leader who doesn't own the vision will not be able to have the convincing passion to not only overcome the difficulties along their way, but also to bring other people into an excited enthusiasm behind them. In other words, I have to personalize what I do to a certain degree, and we understand that there's limits to that, but at the same time, we have to have a certain kind of, of ownership where this vision is something that I want and this vision is something that I believe in. Nothing will make people run away from us quicker than if we don't believe ourselves in what we're asking them to believe in, right? That's a, immediately trust will fall and immediately we'll be un, unable to really engage the people around us. So I, well, how do I do that? How do I either become the origin of vision, if you're, especially if you're an entrepreneur or a visionary kind of leader, in that case, you actually come up with solutions to problems, even if there seem to be no solutions at hand. It's a, it's a really wonderful blessing to be the idea guy, right? So a lot of people call that person, right? So this is somebody who's just full of solutions. And what a blessing, but also what a curse, as we know, because it's sometimes really hard to be around people who have a lot of ideas because it means constant change. And any process that we have, we know there's a moment where you just have to decide and execute on a vision without changing. But in the original thought of what we are to accomplish, it's really helpful to have idea guys. It's, it's helpful to have folks who see outside the box. And then on the other hand, you have people when you're working for someone who's already got the ideas that too requires an understanding from the inside of what that original thinker actually had inside their mind and how you can help contribute to a new or at least a visionary way of implementing their thought. So obviously this is a, a part of leadership that a lot of people struggle with because they say, I'm not a visionary. I don't have ideas. And I guess what I'd like to say is you might not have ideas, but you have to have some kind of ownership, meaning that you have to be able to ascribe to the ideas of another in a way that's personal. Otherwise, you're not going to lead. And when you're responsible for the outcome of the actions of others, or you're responsible for the outcome of what's happening, like in your home, uh, for example, well, leadership is, is not an option. You simply have to lead. It's failure to lead would be the ultimate demise of your responsibility. So anytime you sense of responsibility, realize that being at the origin of the action and understanding the roots and the root motivation for what you're doing is, is essential. It's essential whether you're making it up yourself or it's just as essential if it's somebody else that you're executing for. And Aquinas understood that. And so he has this beautiful uh, phase in every human action that he refers to as a kind of first love, a first love that blossoms into what's called the moral intention, right? In other words, it's this, this kind of preliminary action before I make any kind of choices, orienting me towards a destiny. And if I can have that orientation of myself saying, I am going in this general direction, I want to accomplish this. Well, then I'm able to make choices clearly in the light of that intention. 
about how to achieve it in the given set of circumstances and then to be able to rest and enjoy the end goal that I'm trying to achieve. But everything hinges upon, do you want to get somewhere? You know, it's like that old saying, the quickest way to get lost is to not know where you're going. And so many people get lost on the road to life because they've never allowed themselves that incredible ownership that comes from having a dream. Now, without waxing poetic about dreams and, and making it some sort of romantic thing, it means do you really accept to have responsibility for where your life is going? Do you, do you accept to be the one who owns your activity? That ownership is a profound stage in any authentic human action. It's what makes an adult an adult. And you'll find a lot of adults who aren't adults. And you'll know an adult from a non-adult by their sense of responsibility. This is where I'm going and I've chosen my life because I want to get to this destination. I want to be a successful grandfather. I want to be married for 55 years with my spouse. I want to have children who are upright and make it to heaven, right? That's from the family life. Well, why would we say that that's the only spot where you really own your life? Why not incorporate also my business vision into that? I'd like to make a company that thrives. I want to see a company's culture where my employees are better off for having known me. I want to see a place where we can harmonize all the different elements of our society into one beautiful, harmonious family and where divisions are actually healed over. Why? Because I'm the owner of this company. I want to see God glorified by incredible products and services that we get to render in order to make our world and our community better, right? When you have that kind of motivation deep down inside, well, it becomes in a sense easy to make decisions that about how to get there. But without that overarching deep intention of your soul, well, you'll never really be effective in your leadership because you aren't going anywhere on your own. You're just another cog in the wheel and you're moving someone else's dream forward. I want you to move the dream of Christ forward. He didn't give you that company or put you in that position of power so that you sit on your hands. <laughs> you have talents and you have gifts so as to make them bear fruit for his kingdom. Then if, if it's not going to be at yourself at the origin of some productive activity, at least allow yourself to be possessed by the spirit of Christ who impels us forward in dynamic ventures in order to bring his vision and the vision of his word to bear in our society there in your workplace. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. So all human action begins with a deep sense of intentionality an understanding, in other words, that I am owning from the inside the, the value of what we're doing. And that allows us to understand why we fail, right? There are many places while leaders fail. There's many pitfalls inside of the human heart that can undo the power of a leader's influence in the world. And one of the very first ones and most important ones to look at is the pitfall called fatalism, right? So uh, if you look at the etymology of the word fatalism, it comes from the Latin word fatum, right? Or fata, which is the plural for fatum, 
which is literally coming also from the Greek, the, a dictate of the gods, right? So the understanding of the Greeks was that there are certain things in your life that you simply cannot avoid. They are your fate. They are the decree of the divinity about your life and fate is inescapable. The, the power of the gods over the top of you is stronger than the, the spirit that's within you. And you have to only follow out the inexorable decree of some God figures in your life. And this idea is contrary to Christianity and the, contrary to the understanding of the, the Christian understanding of God's will. Obviously, Almighty God is stronger than we are. Obviously, God has a will that understands all things and sees all things far in advance. And obviously, God's will is foreordained for us. But that does not mean, and this is the mystery, that we are not free. And so instead of saying there is a fate that is ruling my life, and no matter what I do, I cannot escape my fate, we have the beauty in Christianity to say, God has foreseen what I will freely do by his grace and in his grace. And there's the mystery. But he has foreseen what I will freely do. And he has foreordained to work all things, including the freedom of his creatures, together for his good. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of theology there. And there's all kinds of deep discussions to be had. But profoundly and practically put, it means that I am at the intersection of both a freedom to create, to express, to change things, and an understanding that is all-powerful by God and a decree of his will which is unchangeable. And those two things come together in an incredible and yet mysterious harmony inside of me. That means that actually what I need to do is let God be God and let his will work itself out but I have to own my freedom and I have to own the responsibility of what I'm doing. And I would even put it this way. I get to own my freedom. I get to own the possibility that I have to make this world better in a way that comes from within me, in a way that I can lean in on God, ask his guidance for, and then effectuate with joy and with innovation. So when I see the poor going without bread, I don't say this is your fate. I say, it's up to me to try to solve that problem. When I see family life disintegrating, I don't say it's just my fate, or this is simply God's will. I say that God is going to hold me to an account for what I did or what I did not do for the least of his brethren. And so if God's put me inside of a business and he's asked me to make that business flourish and I'm putting my talents at the service of this mission of this corporation, it's so that as I deploy my talents at the, behind the mission of this corporation, I'm convinced that by so doing, I'm going to be making an impact that betters the lives of people through the products and services that we render, and that I'm going to be doing it in a way that glorifies him. And if that's not the case, then you need to change your profession because you need to own and, and believe in what you're doing. And sometimes that's very hard because what you're doing seems such a distant thing from the good that you really would like to do. And yet remember to hold the dignity of all human labor up high. Everything that we do for our brothers or sisters in the world, we do in the name of God because our world is a complex place and sometimes we need things done. And sometimes the things that get done are just maybe far from the spiritual, but that does not mean that they are far from value. So that being said, where does that leave us? 
And I'd say it leaves us with a challenge. How do I uncover my heart's ability to really seize upon what I'm doing, seize upon its value, and make it a part of my gift of myself back to my God and my gift of myself to my fellow human beings? How is it that I, that I can do that? And when we look deep inside, at, when you look at Aquinas' analysis of that particular aspect of our human behavior and try to say, well, what gets in the way of that process? You know, the first fact is that obviously for many of us, it's a real challenge. I have no vision. I have no real profound motivation. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm simply going through my life, right? We hear this all the time. I just come in, I check, I, I punch the card in the morning, I punch out in the evening, and during that time, I've simply sold my life as a kind of slave to the company. People have this mentality. It's a sad mentality, but I can understand it. I mean, some of our jobs are just really, really hard. I remember in my own life when I was a chicken egg gatherer, and I have a lot of respect for anybody in that profession. So if any of you are chicken egg gatherers, hats off to you, because that is one hard job. And I remember just how difficult it was. And one day we would gather 10,000 eggs and we would just go along pushing this little cart and gathering eggs and putting them in, in this sweltering hot chicken coop. And the only thing that we could do to mitigate the sheer misery of our plight was to listen to music on, on a little Walkman that I had with those headphone things over the top of my head. And I would listen to music in Beethoven and Mozart as I was gathering chicken eggs. That was, that's how I survived an otherwise very difficult job. You could say, well, goodness, how is it that you can own that job and put it, it's really hard. I can understand that. The easiest way to get through was simply to check out and to, to allow yourself to say, well, I hope my paycheck is worth it. But is that really the ideal? Is that how we really want to live? No. So let's focus for a second on a happier vision, a vision of work where you don't just seek to remediate the mental strain of a hard job like gathering chicken eggs. Let's imagine a little bit of a happier scenario, one in which you're actually leading the charge in something slightly more engaging. The question remains the same. How is it that I can find value in what I do? And the answer might be surprising. It's not necessarily from the outside. It actually comes from the inside. The more that I'm able to find a way to allow myself to connect with what I do and the value thereof, the more that I can unleash the waters of ownership, of responsibility and of vision that are going to make me an effective leader. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. So leadership begins where the human action begins, right? Where my own activity is, is deeply rooted in my identity. And when you look through the stages of that, the very first moment where that happens is what Aquinas calls the formation of the moral intention. In other words, my ability to say, this is what I'm going to orient myself towards achieving, right? And so for a worker, even though it's not precisely a moral intention itself, but there's an analogy in inspiration where I go from all of my work to knowing suddenly this is what I want to, to achieve. And in both of those different you know, frameworks, 
there's an element where I am involved. And so I have to come into a, a, a truth about what I really want and who I really am. And for many of us, that's where we are the most damaged. As we go through life, if we analyze ourselves, what is it that kills dreams? What is it that keeps us from owning and wanting to achieve where we want to go? If we really look at it, I think that many of us suffer from either rejection or abuse in some forms in some sad cases or a, a preference that's been given to others, which deflates our ego, deflates our sense of self, deflates even our ability to really esteem our talents. I mean, if you came from an environment where you were always put down and where you weren't given the capacities necessarily to achieve your, your own dreams and visions or where your own desires weren't always upheld or encouraged as being something that was innately good, it's going to be really hard for you to come to a preference where you say, this is where I want my life to go. And that's just a fact, right? But it has three unfortunate side effects. The number one is despair. And boy, do we ever see that. When you give in to fatalism, you give in to fatalism oftentimes by becoming desperate, meaning almost declaring that the enemy has won. <laughs> the enemy has won and life is going to be miserable thereafter. You can see this in many uh, television characters, for example, which kind of epitomize this, the drama of human existence when evil, or if it's not evil, at least when failure has become an inevitable option, we sit down on the, the, the side of the curb and we begin to cry. A little bit like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. We mope around because life is such and it's a, it's a bad thing. It shouldn't be happening in our lifetime. These things shouldn't be happening to our kids. Our world is not the way it should be. Oh, we got a new manager at work. And because of that, everything's going to change. And now life is going to be miserable. It's the voice of despair. Second option a lot of people come into is apathy. Meaning that the only way I can really cope with the inevitable of, of, of pain in my workspace environment, one way or the other, or strain and un, undue consequences, is by turning it off. An apathetic person is someone who is no longer leading because they say it doesn't do any good anyway. And all of us can understand just how toxic that can be for our employees if we create an environment where they don't feel like they should speak up or should give their ideas or where they even feel like they should not even apply themselves because it doesn't make any difference, right? To care for your people means to create an, an atmosphere where apathy is extinguished because people actually do care. They care because you do, and they make an impact because you want them to. Well, that means that deep down inside, you also have to look, where am I apathetic about my own job? Where am I apathetic about the impact that my life can have by exerting my talents for at the service of others. And wherever that apathy is, I got to get rid of it. Right? The third option is anger. So you'll see a sign of fatalism wherever you see the clenched fist of rage, right? Because rage and anger can be good things. They're actually at the root of half of our virtues, as a matter of fact, where we feel inside a drive or an energy to overcome obstacles in our way for the sake of the good. But where anger or rage is expressed in a destructive fashion, a negative 
consequences. It's almost always because we feel pent up, that there's no real thing that we can do except to rage against the machine that controls us and the boxes that define us. And that too, however, is a sign of fatalism because there you're not constructing something positive. You're not building, you're only tearing down. So be it in despair, be it in apathy, be it in anger, all three are fatalistic. In other words, there's nothing I can do to overcome this situation. And so many of our leadership projects fail exactly there. What a difference it makes when Christ enters the picture. Because Christ is the anti-fate. <laughs> he comes to summon us to follow him into free and innovative efforts whereby we deploy the talents he gave us according to his will and according to the designs of his providence, obviously, but where love can be original and where his grace can blossom into ideas, into initiatives that are at the service of his love and inspired by his spirit. Our God, in other words, is the God of inspiration. He's the God who summons folks to give the very best of themselves in their own unique ways. How beautiful to see that a world on the outside can enslave people by economic forces or enslave people by political powers. It can enslave people by ideas that are sterilizing and neutralizing. And you'll always see the signs of it, that that world in the despair, in the apathy, and in the anger of the people who are entrenched in it. The human soul pushes against those forces because we are in the image and likeness of God fundamentally. And God fundamentally inspires us to give the newness of new ideas, of new motivations, of new expressions from the depths of who we are as a gift. And this is why we are leaders. And this is why Christ wants you to be a leader so that you can help the people underneath you to not give way to an understanding of life that says it has been decreed and I must follow it. But instead, you've been given talents and you must deploy them according to the circumstances with the ingenuity of your own unique intelligence. And wherever our people can deploy their intelligence with ingenuity, we, have, we will have happiness and happy workers and people who are able to not just execute the desires of others, but lead the world around them. We'll have the world that Christ came to redeem. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.